97th episode of Rank and Review. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and this episode, current Rank and Review champion, The Beckman, is here to help me discuss, review, and then rank six boogeyman features. We have Rawhead Rex, Hatchet, The Crow, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, Sleepless, and Candyman. As usual, you should go into the podcast expecting typical spoilers and coarse language. I have a bit of a potty mouth, and uh, if you don't want stuff wrecked for you, make sure you check out the pictures before you listen to the reviews. If you are needing something else to jam in your ears after you plugged into the newest episode of Rankin Review, I would heartily recommend the Shell Shedding Movie Show, the Terror Table Podcast, and a lifetime of Hallmark as alternatives. But remember, Rankin Review does drop every other Wednesday. You can send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And the website is rankinreview.ca. As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. Now let's talk about some boogeyman. Hello and welcome to another fun-filled episode of Rankin Review. Um, and joining me, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, this episode is, at the time of this recording, the current champion of Rankin Review, mm. the much celebrated, the much mm. venerated, mm. Mr. Lee Beckman. I prefer the title instead of Lee Beckman. I, it's just you just want the the Rankin Review champion. That's all you want. No, no, no. It's just, oh. it's just the, the, the Beckman. The Beckman. That's, All right. The Beckman I is with us. I like already established, man. I'm sorry. I <laughs> deeply apologize. I'm so glad to have you back as our reigning champion. <laughs> I'm such a You're going to be so mad if, like, the episode before this one, because we're tr- going to try and bank another episode here. Of course. <laughs> you know, this is the way. This is the way. <laughs> this is how it happens. Uh, we're going to talk about Boogeyman this episode. Uh, yep. What do you think, just, I mean, you don't have to give me your ranks, but what do you think of the selection? Uh, I gave you a bunch of options. You picked this one. What was it that drew you to the list? Um, there was a, There's some really good films on this list. Um, all of them, I could, you know, speak somewhat, I think all of them, I could speak somewhat lovingly to them. 
Um, Stephen King once said that even like the, a bad horror film is still a very good time, and all of these films at least make me smile in some sort of way. And they're really sort of about you know dark boogeyman. Yeah. Uh, there's a central character either resurrected or some some kind of monster that's going to be uh, affecting its own vengeance or uh, affecting some kind of violence upon the people who awakened it or affected it. Um, and some of them are more complicated than others. We have a couple of R-rated superhero pictures, arguably, or comic book pictures. It's hard to call the crow a superhero <laughs> or Ghost Rider a superhero, but... No, if anything, they're very much anti-heroes. But there's a lot of strong images of horror in this, like, like. Oh yes, no, no, like it's it's dark, dark, dark. A lot of this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and I like uh, a lot of '90s and '80s sort of retro stuff to to sort of warm us up to, like in the era of movies when I was really excited about these for the first time, and uh, I was more susceptible to the tricks of the genre. So it's like weird. I have a relationship with The Crow. I have the relationship with Candyman. I watched it when yep. it was new. I watched it when yep. I was in my 20s, and I've watched yep. them again now. Yeah, I think I saw most of these in the theaters. Yeah. I didn't see Candyman in the theaters. Oh, it was good. May you rest in peace, Pacific Cinemas. Yeah. It was one of the first, one of the first horror movies I saw there. In that same fall... I saw Dracula with my godfather, or sorry, I saw Dracula with my grandpa, excuse me, and I saw Candyman on a date. Nice. Yeah, good old Pacific Cinemas. <laughs> Off topic, my first R-rated horror movie was Misery. Really? Uh, it's not, in, in the theater, I mean. I mean, I, I'd seen The Shining, and I was still in the single-digit age category, but I yeah. mean, where I got to go see something in the theater. Yeah, uh, I think mine mine was Child's Play too. I, I had to sneak in a couple of times. By the third time, my parents wrote a note saying I was fourteen because I had no ID. And this and this usher would, would kick me out twice. Is like, I but I was like, hey, 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 I have a ticket. You cannot kick me out. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I got uh, escorted out of uh, the theater that was used to be in Midtown Mall. Because uh, I, I was, uh, I can't remember what movie I'd seen, but there was a Friday the 13th movie there, and I was yep. going to try and sneak in to see the rest of the finale of Friday the 13th. I think I was like watching it through the window in the door. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Nice try, kid. Yeah. But anyway, like, oh, oh. Uh, there was something about these sort of figures. The Jason Voorhees is a nice example, but like uh, the the hook-handed silhouette of Candyman that like yep. got me excited about horror movies. But when I first watched them, I didn't see a lot deep to them. Even The Crow was just basically a goth action movie to me when I first saw it, in, and I was in high school. Like I didn't really appreciate any kind of deeper depth meaning to it at all well the crow is not exactly a deep story as well even the comic books it, it is essentially a revenge story yeah but uh again it's just funny how life experience changes the way you look at these movies yeah true 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 uh, i will also say this about about the crow and this is one of the things that i did want to talk about it has probably one of the, one of the most quintessential of movie soundtracks Probably in the last 30, 40 years. But the soundtrack is the 1990s? <laughs> well, I think of, of the movie soundtracks. So that's when, like, goth 
rock or goth music really went mainstream. Grunge, as well. alt, rock, yeah. metal stuff. Grunge, yeah. but that's you know, like Nirvana had happened at that point. Yeah. Pearl Jam had happened, but it was just this explosion. So the Crow at, at the time it felt very very hip as well. I think it's aged well. Like it still looks amazing, and I don't want to you know, obviously get into the Crow as much, but. It is very 90s. Yeah, no. And at the time you watch it, again, this is what I was was sort of hitting on. When I first watched it, it was just this amazing cutting-edge thriller. And watching it now, it's kind of a bit of a timepiece. Parts of it have aged. I really like the production value in Alex Proyas. And again, we'll get to that movie when we're talking about it. But there's just something different about watching it now because it's it's a retro movie in a weird way. At the time, it seemed so alive and vibrant, and now it seems like, in some weird way, the flashier and more energetic and more today you try to make your movie, the more strangely rapidly it seems to age you. Yep, yep. Um, and I have to say, just a weird, random inclusion. Uh, maybe to counterbalance the crow is the second Nick Cage Ghostbusters movie. One of the meanest reviews, Ghost I think. Rider. Ghost Rider. Pardon me. One of the meanest reviews I think that I've given on the podcast and I've given some pretty mean ones were for the original Ghost Rider movie but I have been looking forward to finding someone to talk to about Ghost Rider 2 so to be continued yeah this is going to be an interesting conversation <laughs> I, you know my my sort of like final sentence on Ghost Rider was the original Ghost Rider is kind of like the perfect 13-year-old boy movie. That when you saw it at 13 years old, it was awesome! But when you revisit it as, you know, let's say past even 19, you're like, oh my god, this movie is terrible. Yeah, yeah. But now we have Spirit of Vengeance. Yeah. What? Yeah, like... <laughs> From yeah. the creators of Crank. I know, which is really even, like, <laughs> I do think they can be capable filmmakers. I do I appreciate the Crank movies. They're not always gigantic hits, their films, right. but they have talent, which is, never mind. Yeah, let's save it for Ghost Rider. All right. Well, the six boogeyman features that we are going to be talking about this episode, we're going to talk about Rawhead Rex, a Clive Barker adaptation monster picture from the 80s. Giant penis monster. We're going to talk about Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, starring Nicolas Cage, the sequel to his... First Ghost Rider picture. And don't forget an awesome cameo by Christopher Lambert. Could never forget that. We're going to talk about Adam Green's debut, Hatchet, which oh, has man. been a long time coming. I'm kind of amazed that we're this deep into the podcast and I haven't reviewed Hatchet yet. So I'm not... Hatchet? This is the Virgin Hatchet episode? Yeah, isn't that weird? Have you done like any of the Hatchet movies? I don't think I've discussed any of the Hatchet. I've talked about Adam Green a few times. We did... Uh, Frozen and digging up the marrow, but uh, I've never done a hatchet movie. I think it came up in one of our ranks, but we've never actually reviewed it. Well, I feel honored and ashamed that it's taken this long, but <laughs> god darn it, we're gonna do it. Concern son. it. Uh, we're also gonna talk about Alex Preuss as the crow and the probably get into the tragic circumstances that surround it. Yep. From Dario Argento, Sleepless, although yep. for me, I have to admit, the thing that's attracting me to this particular picture is Max von Sydow. Uh, it's been on the record that I'm not a, as big an Argento fan as apparently a horror movie fan is supposed to be, but 
I reserve the right to have my own opinion on that subject. <laughs> so, Dario Argento's Sleepless. <laughs> there's no judgment here. There's no judgment here. And we're going to wrap things up with another Clive Barker adaptation uh, from Bernard Rose. I hope I'm right about that. Uh, yep. Candyman. Candyman. Yep. Candyman. 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 Thanks for being here, yeah. uh, the Beckman. I'm I'm all excited, man. This is this is this is what we do. This is what it- we do. this movie called Rawhead Rex. It's, <laughs> it's from the 80s. It's one of the first, I think maybe the first adaptation of Clive Barker. And it is written by Clive Barker, but that is sort of the full extent of his involvement in the production. Um, I, I, I think that he was around, but he didn't have a lot of sort of creative say in, in what was going on. I, I think he was an up-and-coming uh you know, sort of theater brat. Yeah, he was doing a lot of theater and art, sort of that sort of world. Um, and I think his books of Bud were starting to get published and getting some sort of, uh, starting to get popularity, at least in, in, in his side of the ocean. It wasn't until he was fully endorsed by Stephen King that he was embraced on this side of the, the ocean right. as well. But uh, it's, it's a primitive movie in some ways. It's low budget. And yep. it's the first whack at the sort of Clive Barker universe kind of thing. I mean, I, I know that Rawhead Rex is not necessarily directly connected to a bigger world of Clive Barker, but he does seem to have very specific elements to his stories that repeat themselves a lot. And Rawhead Rex definitely plays to that pattern. Side note, this is actually the, the second movie in which the director... And uh, screenwriter worked together. Oh, there was okay. another. There was another movie which I'm just trying to find right now, and it's escaping me. But this is the. Apparently, there was a two-picture deal, so this was the second one. Oh, okay. Well, uh, George pa- Pavlou, I guess, is the, is the guy's name. Pavlou, yeah. 
It's interesting because I'm I, I like Clive Barker. I like his world, but I have to sort of sell it. It is a very low budget '80s package. I remember renting this movie on VHS from Forty Nine Cent Video. May it rest in peace. And laughing at the movie. Yep. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I, I found a reasonably good cheap copy of it and I picked it up to see again uh, having read and experienced more of Clive Barker and I sort of watched it as a fan of it and yep. from the fanboy perspective I can have a lot of positive things to say about Rawhead Rex now but yep. I think it is for fanboys this is there's, there's a little bit of an uphill battle to get into Rawhead Rex I'm going to end up endorsing the movie but I'm a little bit red-faced about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, see, I just sort of admit my guilt of like bad, schlocky, you know, midnight movies, and just say this: this is your universe. You know, if if you're sitting down to a movie about a sort of giant masters of the universe-looking monster that does very odd things, then. Thank you, is is all I say. (laughs) You know the cliche, the book, in this case, novella, is always better than the movie, though? Yeah. Um, I think it's it's true very here. I say this here because when out of nowhere, nowhere really left turns take place in this 80s cult classic cheese fest horror film, you will understand why. Because this, of course, is an early work by Clive Barker. Um, Apparently, when this was all said and done, this project was the catalyst for Barker to write and direct most of his work or at least like the length of popularity in Hollywood which was about a decade what in the late 80s to mid 90s you would say well he was making his own movies of course Hellraiser and Nightbreed um, and he was producing some of the sequels the early sequels I think but um, to to limit degrees of success I've always thought that Barker is that is most successful as a storyteller as an imaginative mm-hmm. thinker um, I think that like when Bernard Rose directs Candyman, you know that mix of talent can have really good results. Um, yep. I think that not every, everybody didn't know quite what they had here, even Clive Barker. Um, yeah. I think weirdly the thing that I end up liking about the movie is essentially what we have is a monster jumps out of a hole in the ground and kills a bunch of people. Yeah. No. It, it, it's very simple in a lot of ways. I will say one more thing though, mm-hmm. because this, uh, because of what this the way this movie is, and and Barker disowns it at least publicly. We have indirectly uh, to thank Rawhead Rex for basically the original Hellraiser. Right. If it was if it wasn't for this, there would be really no Hellraiser. And so I say thank you, Rawhead Rex. Well, I still believe that somebody would probably get around to adapting some of Clive Barker's stories. It just might not have been Clive Barker himself, arguably. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Rawhead Rex. Um, Rawhead Rex. If you want to get into sort of the uh, Clive Barker in aspects of the story, it's a very male affected creature. Like yes. in in the in the description in the in the novella from the Books of Blood, he's like an animated, veiny, muscly, penis looking thing with a big toothy maw. And yep. in and it does still have arms and appendages, but like it's very <laughs> it's very penile. <laughs> yes. uh, and and what the movie movie doesn't the movie doesn't do that, and I get I I understand that choice. 
Yeah. But I'm not super happy necessarily with the choice they did make. Like, he has the big open maw, but he does. I think the Masters of the Universe figure is actually a good analogy. Yep. He's got this weird Warhammer mohawk and, yep. and this big open mouth, and he's sort of animated, but not enough to be convincing. Like, he lands almost in Muppet territory at times. He, 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 it's like he's got this like giant lock jaw that he just can't quite close. So any seriousness or any form of tension is immediately jettisoned like the second you see him. Even when you see it first arrives, which is a, probably at least the, the, like the coolest the monster looks when it first comes out, it looks just very teenage mutant Power Ranger y. He's a Conan the Destroyer level villain. Yeah. And, like, and the and then, movie doesn't want him to be that. The movie wants him to be a seriously terrifying creature and yeah. and malicious and evil. Um, yet, uh, in sort of classic supervillain ways, he has some pretty particular weaknesses. In the book, right. he has an aversion to women who are uh, on their period, and yeah. he's revolted by pregnant women and like the whole idea of life and creation, which he sort of yeah. is a representation of the opposite of. He's this angry male rage, and he's disgusted and repelled by women. But yeah. he'll pretty much kill anything he can con- he comes into contact yeah. with. He's I don't know if it's territorial or if it's masterly thing. And and we have these priests that uh, get sort of baptized in his urine and start worshiping him. And again, yeah. that's a very specific sexual, ugly, gross thing that's yeah. very Clive <laughs> Barker that I think sort of just in a weird way distinguishes the movie <laughs> yeah well that's the thing there are some really strange turns yeah uh, in the sort of generic monster movies that uh, this is why i sort of recommend because i actually did the same thing uh, that you did because like spoilers we talked about this uh, you know two days ago i actually sat down and listened to the audio version on youtube Oh yeah, uh, and that's the thing. Like, if you didn't know what Barker was going for, which he was basically doing, like the physical embodiment of like male toxicity or the patriarch, whatever you want to do, like like the worst of it, and how it just you know, and of course, Christianity or Catholicism, whatever denomination it's portrayed in this movie, it seems very old testamenty. Um, is also part of the patriarchs, and so that has to be offended and 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 stomped on. This is a strange movie. Uh, <laughs> like, it popped into some... my head a little bit too about the sort of the homosexual angle too, the whole repulsion and anxiety and fear of women. Yeah, because uh, Clyde Barker himself is a homosexual. I mean, uh, he might not have been as aware of that in the writing, but because I knew that context watching the movie, I, I thought it was interesting that that his monster be so male, right? Yeah, yeah no, like it is very much on steroids, and yeah, like there's a scene where it attacks. Like I think one of the first two, you know, pair of villagers after it's been unleashed and killed the person that helped. You know, remove the very phallic-looking giant stone as well, um, and it kills the husband. But once it sees the wife, it's pregnant and just sort of retracts its claws. There, like, and then like, there's, there's another, even the ending where the, the the male monster is taken by, you know, taken down by this physical female, you know, cosmic energy power. Yeah. This movie is wild. <laughs> but 
for all that we're saying, it's not that complicated at all. No. It has no, these themes injected in them, but like it's a layer of paint, really. It is a monster movie. The monster yeah. jumps out of a hole in the ground and it kills a bunch of people and then it's it's destroyed. And that's essentially what it is. This all this other stuff kind of like is is almost just decoration in a way for what essentially it is it, it, it's a monster movie yeah. and uh the big flaw like i say going back to where i started here is that in the 80s execution of it i don't like the look of the monster particularly at all but i no. do like the story and the execution in, in a lot of other ways but yeah. the thing that kept on hitting me as i was watching this is that as much as it's a dirty word try this again you guys uh, how about a remake mm. Well, Barker claims he wants to re remake uh, Rex with its original design, and like a lot of me wants this to happen. It would probably come across as one of those porn parodies for, that were mildly popular in the eighties and nineties. You, you know, like with tantalizing titles such as Geriatric I Park. I think or... that there is a fair line that we can draw if we got like a Giger-esque design where it's a phallic creature without literally being a penis. I do, like it doesn't have to be like that fucking silly like it like uh it can get the job done without being you know crossing the line into ridiculousness i mean as i mean it's already a monster movie so granted it's ridiculous but yeah uh yeah like uh, a monster movie that can still be scary in a way because yeah if it if it becomes flesh gordon or something like that then then yeah. We, we can't take any any thrills out no, of it. I know, and I'm sure they could actually do it threatening, but there's such weird, dark, sexual, not even undertones, or overtones to this, like, to this movie that, to like the casual viewer who would know very little about Clive Barker or horror movies in general, they would watch this and go, what in dear God? <laughs> yeah. No, and and another thing that comes with this movie that I think you'd have to get used to that some people find sensitive is sacrilegiousness. This 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 thing that will happen again and again, where uh, images of, of you know sacred text or specifically Christian religion, uh, religious yeah. iconography is destroyed or or, or defiled. Even um, yeah. we definitely see that here, and some people that really really get they find that upsetting. Um, yep. I, I don't take it personally I just think that it, it's kind of a weirdly nervy angle to play in some people I think you okay. lose as many people as you win by playing that card sometimes I think today you could probably get away with it actually a whole lot more but during the time when this movie was released it was probably a little bit of a slap in the face right yep. I mean yeah. I, 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 I'm making excuses and I'm sounding apologetic for the movie, but here's a, a, an example in contrast, right? Yeah. Uh, the main character, well, first of all, there is no American character in the novella. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, I know. That, that, that was another that was strange. The main character who sees Rawhead and no one believes initially, there's some sort yeah. of personal competition happening between he and Rawhead. Yeah. And Rawhead somehow magically manages to show up wherever he and he is. Like, yeah, I don't know how he like if he teleported or what that angle of the story is like. Literally, his kid stops to pee, at, and uh, right. Rawhead is there to attack. And we see Rawhead approach the van where the boy is there by himself, vulnerable. We see the boy back away in horror, 
and we mm-hmm. see the father react to Rawhead attacking, but we don't see what happened. Yeah. No, it's in a the very story, in the story, by contrast, Rawhead makes eye contact with the father, then rips the the son's head or bites the son's head off in front of him, making it intensely personal, intensely gory, intensely violent. Like, mm-hmm. holy shit! Um, they couldn't or wouldn't do that there. And I, I mean, I don't know if I, that's something that we would want to see again. There's probably a middle ground between the two. But there are scenes that the movie kind of flinch on that Clive mm-hmm. Barker probably wouldn't have. Now, whether or not he should have, I guess, maybe would be the other question. Well, uh, I don't know. I think considering how much has been... We, we've now you know, had films like Inside and, well, even It be sort of a number one you know Dr. Sleep it seems like kids are on the menu now all of a sudden yeah and I'm sure once again in the 80s it was you know was you know kind of you know very shocké and now it's passé I think we could get away with it um the question is do we want to see a giant I thought it was sort of a mix between a Jack Skeleton from the Nightmare Before Christmas looking creature and a giant mushroom penis looking thing right but yeah lots of teeth I would pay money to see that. Right. But again, a redesign of the creature, a little bit more... Like, again, I don't need to see a kid's head get bitten off necessarily, but some middle ground between the, you know, the yep. 80s version and, and what the, the story presented uh, could yep. be cool. And and I don't know. I'm In the same way I can sometimes get hungry for just a unashamed slasher, I could yep. really just go for an unashamed monster movie, a movie that says... This is a monster movie, and it's about a monster that kills people, and we're totally okay with it. And, like, fine. Yes, thank you. Yes, I say thank the Dark Minion overlords for this as, yeah. as well. No, I mean, at the end of the day, Rawhead Rex really just sort of fit the bill of a good old-fashioned, almost sort of a, um, you know, 1960s British horror movie, you know, Hammer film. Like, like, at least the shots in the wood with the fog and the smoke at least sort of remind me of that. Um, it, it is very much that it, it floats the bill. Um, also, if you, if for all you like midnight movie lovers who like some really strange, bizarre, there are a couple of scenes where I have to say I did not see that coming. No, no, it definitely, definitely likes to cr- jump over the line, and that's Clive yeah. Barker. I think that's the appeal of Clive Barker. He goes yeah. places you don't think he will or should sometimes, and yeah. takes risks that way, which is kind of exciting. Sometimes it sort of crosses over to exploitive, maybe, but that's the sort of dangerous line you walk. But it's yeah. a good whack at it, but it's really lost to the time it was made and for the yeah. the cheapness of its production. I sort yeah. of love it, faults and all, like warts and all, and love is a strong yeah. word. I enjoy it, warts and yeah. all, but yeah. uh, like it's like I said at the beginning, I think a very specific meal for a very specific crowd. Yes, no, I, I definitely salute that. Yeah, 100%. No, um, I fall down I fall down basically the same way. It's, I didn't really hate it. In fact, I enjoyed it for what it was. So I tip my hat there, sir. Boom. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Victor Crowley. Folks weren't too kind of Victor. So he stayed hidden in his daddy's house, out in the bayou. 
One night, some mean children came to his house, and there was a bad fire. When his daddy dropped down the door to save him, he didn't know Victor was pressed against the other side. And poor Victor Crowley died. They say people disappear in those woods. And legend has it, if you get close enough to the old Crowley house at night, you can still hear Victor Crowley roaming in the woods, crying for his daddy. Hatchet's a weird beast. Uh, this is the debut feature from Adam Green, and it it's it's really rough around the edges. Like I'm gonna be honest, it's really rough around the edges. But you can tell it's made by somebody who loves the horror genre, who knows the horror genre, and by his own admission, has been wanting to make this movie since before his balls dropped. He came up with the idea of Victor Crowley when he was like 12 years old. <laughs> and he yeah. nursed this thing, and he nursed this thing, and he managed to scrape up some money and get people to help him make the movie. And not only did he get people to help him make the movie, but he's populated this entire movie with uh, people from the horror genre. Most of them are just there for a blink and you miss sort of hello, but yeah. there they are. And yep. like this must have been such a, a great you know dream come true experience for somebody who's grown up loving the horror genre and mm -hmm. being able to work with these people even if it was just for a couple of hours would have been a great you know fan moment for him. But yep. in the end of the day, it should have just been a self indulgent sort of like fan wet dream come true. But the movie's kind of neither here nor there, and I think that's what it is for the first half an hour, <laughs> but. The last hour of the movie, I think, absolutely, completely, in kind of an A-plus sort of way, delivers on what horror fans want from this type of slasher genre picture. Like, it's a weirdly delicate thing to handle, because he would do the exact same thing a few years later in Hatchet 2, and I liked it significantly less. Mm -hmm. There is some kind of perverse magic in this movie. I think part of what makes it work is how rocky the first half an hour is. In a way, it, it, it makes you kind of lower your expectations of the movie. So then when it comes this full bore, crazy, like ridiculously over the top violent slasher movie, all of a sudden a smile just kind of pops on your face, at least it did for me, and it never left. Like... <laughs> We got Kane Hodder playing yep. killer as like, you know, everybody's always wanted him to do ever since he, you know, mastered playing Jason Voorhees. We got a very capable, very likable and mostly relatable cast. Yep. And I mean characters and almost everybody in the movie is kind of interesting. The sleazy yep. guy with the camera, that's Bill Murray's brother, right? Yep. The two guys that get killed in the cold open, that's Robert Englund and uh, Josh, what's his face from the Blair Witch Project, the Blair yeah. Witch Project, like, like the movie just keeps on throwing you stuff, and even the stuff that doesn't work will work on later on. I thought that Tony Todd's cameo in this movie was lame. 
Like, I like Tony Todd as an actor, but I thought that looked and felt phoned into me. He comes back really? for the second one. He comes back for the second one, and he absolutely redeems himself, I think. But in this okay. movie, Tony Todd, it just seemed like, here, I'm making a cameo in a nothing horror movie. <laughs> right? So, long story short, I'm sorry for the drawn-out inter- introduction. This is a movie for people like Lee Beckman and Larry Parsons. This is, yeah. like, full-blooded gross-out horror, and it's fun. Like, uh, spoilers, everybody dies in this movie. And I didn't walk away from the movie being like, oh, that's horrible, (laughs) you know? I didn't feel drained by it. It's not about letting somebody, like, although it has some brutal kills, it's not even necessarily a torture movie. It's a spectacle movie. It's a splatter movie. And I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess one of the questions I was going to uh, ask just to start was, are some films just critic-proof? Because what Adam Green has done is essentially a giant love letter to those slasher films that were very popular in the late 70s and definitely during the 80s. Yeah. But those films were universally usually trashed by the critics. So Adam Green, for his you know first big movie, I have to I kind of admire, you know, his big brass balls that he decided to make an old as, as, as advertised an old fashioned slasher horror film and um, like people get their faces sanded off <laughs> right yeah and like sanded that is objectively like, ridiculous are like <laughs> dramatically removed and almost I, almost a 360 yeah and again, practical effects, and it's so ridiculous and so over the top that as yeah. much as you can be like grossed out and go, holy shit, you yeah. can't be devastated by anything you see. There's just this lacquer of ridiculousness over everything. That was another thing I think that worked in its favor is there's not a serious bone in this film's body. Oh, no. Like, it, it just wants you to have fun, and it lets you know that early. Yeah, and I was worried because I like I remember you recommended this a long, long time ago. Which, by the way, I do need to find a new copy uh, oh, no. of Hatchet as my DVD copy just went boom. Hmm. Uh, watching this, it, it, I guess it was just it's it scratched. I mean, like, anyways. Long story short, um, I was kind of worried the first time because the first twenty minutes, a lot of the characters, yes, they are caricatures, but they are. So grating and annoying, but it is deliberately done. Bravo, uh, Adam Green. That I wasn't was sure of... if it was deliberate until we got on the bus. Yeah, like I was. It was like because at the time, especially, I didn't know who Adam Green was. He didn't have a bunch of other films behind his back. This is his first movie, and yeah, yeah it's great that you were able to get these cameos and you know afford these these people to be in your movie. That's good. But yeah. like, do you understand the form? Are you a filmmaker? And yes, and yes. But there's a moment when they're on the bus where there's a meet cute between our, our like who are going to be our two most focused on characters, yeah. and the bus pulls out of the station, and the soundtrack choice is weird. It reminds me of like when at the in Jaws when they set out on the boat journey to catch the yeah. shark, and there's this really sort of big adventure score music that kicks in. And yeah. it seems incongruous with the rest of the movie for a second. It's like the horror part of Jaws ended and the adventure part of Jaws is beginning. Yeah. But uh, in this movie, that sound cue was telling us, okay, now we're off to the uh, to, to the carnival. Like, yeah. this is everything that you think it is, but we're doing yeah. this on purpose. 
yeah. in another movie having two girls who are basically girls gone wild showing their titties the whole time and and snarking at each other would yeah. get on my nerves but this yeah. movie's actually commenting on it and i think yeah. that the two actresses on top of being you know attractive and willing to show their breasts yeah. understand that they're they're commenting on it which i'd like to think made it a little bit easier for them to do the job right yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, no, it, it, it is a sort of classic, um, I'm going to, you know, get away with showing female nudity by, you know, satirizing whether it is girl, Girls Gone Wild. They did the same thing in Prana 3D. Absolutely. And it, you know, but, like, it, yes, it, it's, it makes ex- me it's, like, it's exploitation. We know it, you know it. Let's just yeah. not pretend that it's not exploitation. And I don't know, like, in a way, they're asking for a pass, and I gave it to them. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no! It went down like a nice, nice milkshake. It was kind of funny. I had completely forgotten about Girls Gone Wild. I was never really into that kind of stuff. But I remember, like in the early '90s. In the like, '90s, the ads were all over television. I remember. Yeah, then the internet happened, and I guess that's yeah. from. Yeah, it's interesting because I I watched this also with the commentary, and the and they talked about um, when they were shooting in New Orleans, and they shot like relatively early in the morning and the one thing they notice is you know a lot of the women that were doing the you know taking off like they're putting on the beads and taking off their shirt were not the quote-unquote stereotypical you know model good-looking woman it was usually the 60 year old grandmothers or or 40 year old moms you know flashing everything which was fine but it was the whole illusion of 20 year old women running around going might actually not be the reality of Mardi Gras. Don't yeah. get me wrong, there is debauchery everywhere at these things. I guess 8.30 a.m. on Bourbon Street is not where they have all the A players out. Okay. That's true as well. I'm sure they're all recovering from the night before. But that I do love awesome. New Orleans, and I do love the Cajun vibe and sort of the, the yeah. feel of the of the culture and the swamp and uh, yeah. the goofy, no, uh, like, crass humor, but every character has it. It's not like they yeah. just single out the one fisherman who drinks his own pee like everybody yeah. has a weird like movie affectation yeah no i i, I do want to shout out because adam green is gifted with a really good cast of course you've got kane hodder who gives what i think is probably the cutest massive serial killer performance there's a couple of scenes like i know he's ugly and he's like you know, you know, basically, I don't even want to use the term mongoloid. I don't even know what, what <laughs> word you want to use. But you know, at one point, like, he's just demolished one of the red shirts, and he turns around and does this smile. And instead of being horrified, I was like, aww. There it's... is a weird childish quality to him, I think. I think it's because uh, the overalls with the suspenders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of, you know, I guess traditionally farmer folk will, will wear those, but... I don't know, it, it's sort of, it's like the kind of baggy pants that a little kid would wear. Yeah. Um, and the the fact that he's just immensely powerful to the moment, he doesn't seem to understand his own strength. Yeah. And this is where, like, I knew we were going to have to get to it. But the gore in this movie. Like, yeah. when I told you about the movie, I was I remember saying, like, you're going to be not sure about the movie for, like, the first half an hour or so, but yeah. then something's going to happen. And when yeah. that thing happens, you'll just yeah. relax and everything will be okay. Yeah, and you were right. That's the for the old couple, the first two that get killed on the boat. And they to say that they get killed is just not, doesn't do justice. No, no, they are. <laughs> They're destroyed. Yeah, they are peppered. 
diced and filleted. Um, I want to give a shout out to Richard Rallo, Rihill, I, and I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, and Patrika Darbo. Those are two actors that I've seen before. They're one of those character yeah, actors. They're both seen. in lots of movies for two scenes. Yeah. But I recognize both of them, absolutely. Yeah. And yes, Joel Murray, Bill Murray's brother, does show up. Also, Perry Shen uh, is one, one of those recognizable faces. Perry Dion Shen's going to become basically the through-line face of the series. Yep. Uh, Dion Richmond, for all you Carsby show watchers, was that little kid that uh, was on the show for a while. I recognized him from somewhere, but I don't think that was it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Joel David Moore, who Avatar anyway, and Avatar. Shark Knight. Yeah, yeah. But again, as much as I like all of those actors, I think the thing that did make, makes me remember and cherish Hatchet is the over-the-top, grotesque, practical effects. He twists the head off of the one yeah. guy, and then he splits like he grabs the by the lower mouth jaw and the top, and just. Yeah. unfolds her head and she explodes all on camera and it's like it's not a CGI effect uh, they do a yeah. quick cut to go from her to the prosthetic but yeah. it's amazing it's so yeah. ridiculous and absurd and it like yeah. makes the movie jump from like like say it slowly started at a 1 to about a level 4 or 5 and then yeah. all of a sudden it just jumps to 9 it just goes yeah. holy Adam, shit <laughs> yeah Adam Green surrounded himself with very very talented people uh, John Carl Buechler uh, of course the man who directed Friday the 13th Part 7 did the practical effects for Hatchet he's also the one that's uh, you know drinking the urine in the in water the boat. yeah it makes you think wonder what what Friday the 13th 7 would have looked like if he didn't have it cut to shit, right? This is yeah. no longer the age of the MPAA trying to flex its muscles and save the children from the violence. This yeah. movie is incredibly, gloriously, horrendously violent. It celebrates it. It's okay yeah. with it. And, and if out. you're not okay with it, why the fuck are you watching a movie called Hatchet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? and, and I... And... It also out-vomits with body fluids, drag me to hell, which also was impressive. Like, by the end, I was like, ah, ah, like, there's so much vomiting in this movie. My, do you, you remember our, my friend Diane, right? Oh, yeah. She would hate this movie. The last 20 minutes was all of, like, blood or spit or bile that is projected out of people's mouths it is a, a river of vomit like this movie does nothing subtle but yes when you drink too much you vomit and yes i think if you've seen your best friend get killed in front of you yeah it's an appropriate response oh, in yeah. a lot of ways i i also have another question at one part they're stealing the gas from victor crowley's place and there's this like apparently dead ferret or muskrat that comes alive and freaks out our protagonist a particularly random jump scare that yes um but i i it, that might have been a desperate moment but there's just the like the movie really wants to keep you entertained yeah and I do think that that beginning was uh, was deliberate. It feels oh, rocky, but it was deliberate. So that when the shit hits the fan, it stays going for the rest of the movie. And it sort of earns it, right? 
Yeah, no, no, like he's very, like Adam Green is very, very talented. Um, much like a comedy, he knows the setups. Like there's that brilliant scene with the raccoon in the bush. Yeah. And everyone's freaking out. And of course, you know, make the one actor who has the flashlight go and check it in. And then Victor Crowley jumps out. You know it's coming, but it's, you, you marvel at just the, the setup and the punchline <laughs> of it. It's nice um, to feel like we're on, in on the joke. But yeah. where it becomes the delicate balance is that some of the deaths still matter to us a little bit. Yes. Uh, when his, the best friend goes, it's like, oh, you know, like he didn't even want to go on that swamp tour. He was just tagging along to try and cheer up his buddy. Yeah. Or, or like the two stripper girls that we that are always catty with each other. Like, yeah, they're stereotypes. <clears throat> and yeah, they were basically just there for the exploitation angle of it. But... Mm -hmm. They have such terrible deaths. It's yeah, just no. like, good lord, this is no, this is right. Who exit this movie gets their due. Like no one feels cheated at all. <laughs> Even from our tour guide, who gets what? But his head and like legs is jettisoned from his body. Victor Kelly's um, really big on ripping people's bodies apart with his hands. And honestly, and I, I prefer that. When we move on to the sequels, he gets these elaborate, huge chainsaws and weird weapons that he likes to use. And yeah. I don't know, there's something really tactile about the fact that this guy just physically rips you apart. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like crazy. But that are, might be a flaw. I mean, I've been pretty much guessing. Gushing. Well, see, that's what it comes back to my uh, my original question. Like, what films are critic proof? Right. Like, slasher films are the, the the equivalent of a McDonald's Happy Meal. I know I've made that allegory more than once, but you know what you're getting. And but this film re revels in all the cliches and stereotypes and jokes. And it Dial gives you extra fries and an extra patty that you didn't ask for just because they love yeah. the junk food as much as you do. And they dabbled it with cocaine a little bit. So, <laughs> like, like this this film has an energy that once that first death hits, and like I said, you will know it. It just goes meow, and it's bizarre, and it's wet. I guess we shouldn't say it's the first death. To be fair, there is a t kill, couple kills in the cold open, but we don't see Crowley yeah. at any point. So I'm talking about the first time we see full-frame Victor Crowley doing his business. <laughs> yeah, no, you're just like, you had my attention. No, you had my curiosity, and now you have my attention. But no, it's um, weird because it's stupid, but the characters are real enough that we can care enough that they die. Like, there, there's an emptiness to it, but it's fun. Victor Crowley is just, like we talked recently about Rawhead Rex. He's a monster that jumped out of the ground and started killing people. And yeah. if there's a flaw to the movie, and this probably just goes with the fact that it was a 12-year-old boy that thought it up, right? There's yeah. just... There's no winning with Victor Crowley. It's understood in this movie by all of the locals. And yeah. going forward in the franchise, there's just no reason. That, like, it would have been nice if not that uh, uh, if he had a weakness or, or if there was something about a backstory to give us hope. Yeah. <laughs> because really, once they're in his swamp, it's the, like the credits might as well roll for everyone. And... I have to give credit where credit is due. It's also a film that, like, it knows the rhythm well uh, of a slasher film. Like yeah. I said, uh, even with that, you know, raccoon bush scene. But at the same time, it it the movie ends just very suddenly, and it kind of works. Oh no! 
No, like they're it's, not gonna do a denouement. They're not gonna show the boy kiss yeah. the girl. They're not gonna like. Yeah. No, no, we're done. We're gonna. This is the high point of the movie, and we're yeah. gonna slam the credits. Yeah, and it Perfect. ends on a really <laughs> violent, horrific ending where. You know, good does not win. Well, and he tries to do that same ending in, in the sequels, too, but it's never done as well as it yeah. is in the first one. No, so, like, it, it's weird. He, like, he it like, he does anti-aesthetic things, if that makes any sense, even from the opening credits. Yeah. Uh, where the, it's like, this is not what I would choose for my movie, but okay. But it's <laughs> the it right call. somehow. Um Movies that you know have no data on and just kind of end at times. Like I think of Mum and Dad and how that it that with that film stops. it didn't work. Or or the Lost Boys just yeah. stops. Right? Yeah, yeah, but that works. That 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 ends on a joke, and that's a joke that we've seen set up. Yeah, where Mum and Dad just sort of stops. end. And there's so many yeah, and there's so many questions, and then you're like, no. Yeah. Well, and, that's the difference. There's movies that end, and there's movies that stop. Yeah. <laughs> Hatchet is for horror fans. Like, I don't oh, yeah. think it's going to reach you if you're not already somebody who likes the form. Yeah. But uh, if you are a horror fan and you haven't seen Hatchet, what do you yeah. do? Yeah, do yourself a favor. <laughs> Leave now. Stop what you're doing. Yes, yes, you listening to the podcast. Stop what you're doing right now and put on Hatchet. Agreed. That gasoline I smell? <laughs> Victims, aren't we all? So The Crow was a big deal in the 90s, and we were in high school, or no, just out of high school, I think, I, when it came out. I think I might have been grade 12, actually. Oh, so I was just out of high school, you were, let's, let's make a big deal of this. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's one of these movies that is the 90s, like, full of that alt-rock thing, and super dark, and super goth, and hyper-stylized, and of course it has this sort of grim, pale, like, over top of it, because... Brandon Lee died two-thirds of the way through the production. Um, he has still had a couple of scenes yet left to shoot, so they had to do some really tough course correction in order to finish the movie. And a lot of people were surprised at the high quality of the movie when it finally did come out. And uh, it's just the, the, the tragedy of it. Like, this might have been the movie that turned Brandon Lee into a star. And it's like a complete echo of what happened to his dad. Like, if it was written in a fiction book, you'd think it was a little bit on the nose. So there's all this mythology and all of this fact and mysterious stuff around the movie. But is the movie good? Is what we come down to. Uh, has it aged well? I'm actually kind of nauseous at how old this movie is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's weird upon rewatching it how much... I really connected or really enjoyed the villains in the movie. Yeah. 
and like the good like I like I like Lee in the movie I do think he gives a good performance but it's really saccharine like the writing for his character he's like the super nicest guy in the world Mm -hmm. and the cute little Sarah on the skateboard and Ernie Hudson as the cop I have to say all of that stuff to me kind of (laughs) shrill the darkness works much better than the light in this particular movie and that's clearly what it's better at doing Mm -hmm. um Alex Proyas is a great visual director. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of grown quite the ego in, in recent years, and uh, he's been dragged over the coals critically. Um, I believe he tries to bring something striking, at least visually, to whatever he does, but there's limited degrees of success. Yeah. But I can't help but wonder what the psychological damage of having your first major production and literally seeing your star die in front of you on set could do to you psychologically. So, I don't want to be mean to the movie. It's just not the amazing thing that I thought it was in 1994 or whenever. But it is totally entertaining. And it is, like, with the 90s nostalgia that's going on full bore right now, I completely get the, re- the, the renewed interest in the movie. Um, but once again, there's a difference to how you watch a movie when you're, like, 17 or 18 than when you're in your 40s. And um, it's a fun dirt basic action movie with a way better cast in a way than it deserves but it it absolutely works that's where i start with the crow well uh it's definitely a film of its time uh i i kind of wondered what you know seven year olds today would sort of look at it um and kind of go meh um it does boast an amazing soundtrack and score i will say um Graham Ravel uh, did the score, and this and this score kind of made him as well. And it's, I think, one of the better film scores of the past twenty five years. Um, but I do kind of wonder what kids uh, of this generation would look at it and kind of go lame, because um, it, it it is cheesy at parts. Well, and when I say that the the good stuff, like the bitter yeah. sweet sweetie stuff, yeah. Uh, is is like heavy handed. So is the darkness, but the, the darkness is almost like hilariously over the top to a way that it like it, it starts to work in a comic book kind of way. Yeah. Um, Michael Wincott. Yeah. Whatever happened to Michael Wincott? He he kind of showed up in a lot of high profile movies in the late nineties and early aughts, and I feel like I haven't seen him in forever. Well, he is sixty years old too. Fair enough, but yeah. I mean, uh, I I really like him as a character actor, and he had a lot of these really juicy villain roles, and this yeah. is like one of the high water marks for him and that crew of utterly despicable guys like all of them like you can't like any of them but they have such energy and exuberance like they love being bad well I am actually going to shout out the villains because they in a lot of ways do make them do make the movie of course Michael Wincott plays top dollar who is he's almost like a Shakespearean villain in a lot of ways he's so bored <laughs> and so over a lot of the murder. I'm impressed with all this you know yeah. people coming back Murdering, from the dead to try to kill him raping whatever yeah <laughs> and it works yep he's great as top dollar uh, Michael Massey was actually the act he played fun boy yeah he was the man responsible he's for the pulling the trigger for pulling the trigger and uh, he quit acting oh yeah um, he tried it for a while but he said it, it did break him he's now no longer with us as well oh. uh, but uh, yeah fun boy he was quite good uh, Bai Ling who plays his half sister Micah and lover <laughs> and yes lover yes uh, David Patrick Kelly is T-Bird who's sort of the leader of a yeah. of the posse 
He's this character actor that has been around for a while. You might remember remember him from Commando. Yeah. Uh, he was Sully or Shelley? Is it Shelley? I told you I would kill you last. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That dude. Yeah. He he was a bad guy in Forty Eight Hours. Uh, he was also the villain Dreamscape. He is the most verbal and most slappable of the group. Yeah. <laughs> but I like. He's him. quite he's quite good. Uh, Lawrence Mason plays Tintin. You know, um, he's the one with the knives. Yep. I think he's the first to go. Tony Todd, yep. who we will be talking about. Well, we've talked about more than once, both in an early review and later. He's great as Greens. Joe Polito. Yeah, a and I don't brother. know if Polito's really a villain. No. He's just sort of a dude stuck in the middle. He's kind of a scumbag, but yeah. he's not like, compared to these like murdering rapist yeah. like dudes, he's just yeah. a guy living in a bad part of town. But it's the cliche, they're all, there's no small parts, only small actors. Like some of these only characters only do have a handful of scenes, uh, and they really make it. Um, anyways, um, some of these actors only really do have a couple of scenes, and they make the most of it. Yeah. And it really is a credit to their acting, but also to the writing. Like, the villains really do make this movie. Um, it's also an exercise of style over substance. Like, I do love the look of this film. It, they, and it's used to miniatures and sets. There's, there is some CGI, but a lot of that stuff was done practical. And it would be perfected in Dark City a few years later. It's, it's a very similar like cityscape that he's yeah. working with here. Yeah. Uh, and the artificiality again works with the comic book aesthetic that they're going. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think maybe it's because I have never read the whole series of the original comic book but yeah. even the comic book itself has a veil of doom on it because yeah. the guy who wrote it wrote about his girlfriend who was actually killed and yeah. this was his mourning he didn't yeah. come back from the dead to avenge her death but this is yeah. how he was channeling it yeah. um, the movie still I have to say has points of surprising violence yep. uh, it's sometimes you movie. go back to, to movies from the 90s and they just don't have the same impact but yeah. we were talking about Joe Polito yeah. Joe Polito's death in this movie is brutal yep this is a violent <laughs> movie and it's interesting and it's sort of like we talk about how you hate and like the villains at the same time like we're not necessarily sympathetic to this character but he does not deserve this no. <laughs> like this is this is not nice yeah um, and it's also got this interesting quality of getting you energized in scenes that maybe shouldn't energize you. When uh, Brandon Lee first realizes like how indestructible he is, and he walks into a room full of bad guys and just gets peppered with bullets, yeah. and he stands up and then he sort of like realizes he's in God mode right now. Yeah. And then he kills everybody in the room while the rock music plays and yeah. the smoke fills and like paper flies in the air and it looks amazing yeah. and uh yay yeah. death yeah, carnage so yeah there are moments of the movie where I like uh, I was genuinely energized when I first saw the movie and like I, I noticed this time like oh, there's no scruples about this in the story at all is there, there's no questioning is like is it okay to take a life to avenge a life there's no moral compass to this at all like these guys are bad and we're absolutely okay with them dying and like i don't know if we wanted more depth that way in the crow but it it seems to like be pretending to be deeper than it is in certain sequences is i guess what i'm saying um yeah i also do want to shout out to alex mcdowell he's the set designer uh of the crow we were talking about this earlier and how gorgeous this movie looks but that opening shot which is also a, it's an homage or stealing from Blade Runner um, that's all miniatures 
the, the, yeah. that blows me away. I mean, they did they did add some like CGI flame to it, but it is kind of amazing to me that they have this camera going through this miniature set, yeah. and it's so detailed. Well, and I like that the CGI is just augmented CGI, because yeah. especially in the mid-90s, I mean, even though we had Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, yeah. CGI was, you know, very clearly identifiable. You know? Yeah. Um, there's just something really terrible about an early 90s CGI explosion. They yeah. just... Bleh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and especially water effects. They were doing a lot of stuff with water before they were ready to do stuff with water yeah. <laughs> and CGI. Yeah. Um, Brendan Lee, do you think, like, if alternate universe, he wasn't killed, like, do you think he would go to superstar status, or do you think he would be, like, another sort of Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, within the action arena star type of thing? I'm kind of glad you're asking this question. Um, I'm going to say something controversial here. I think Brandon Lee was actually probably more talented than his father was. Um, at least as a movie star, because... He actually took the, his acting craft seriously. Oh, yeah. Um, like this is a guy that was a bit of an L.A. theater uh, punk a bit, uh, as well as uh, being an action movie star. And take nothing away from his father. His father is an icon, legend, everything. But I kind of found his performance kind of um, really authentic and... and um, really fun to watch yeah. I, I mean I, granted he's given some cheesy lines but I thought with the wrong actor that he could have sunk that movie and Brandon did really really well um, so yeah I think he would have actually become sort of you know a next level action star if he wouldn't have died because he did really well and he, and he was getting better and better with I will agree movie. with that. Like every movie he made was better than the previous one, yeah. and this is a high watermark. It's just be interesting to see where yeah. it goes. Like we romanticize these sort of tragedies, and yeah. like what what would have been like yeah. um, if River Phoenix had lived? Would he be the greatest living actor right now? Yeah, or would he be forgotten? Right? Like we just don't know. Or maybe he's seen. Uh, like I'm not making the case that he'd be forgotten. TMZ, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like. I think he definitely had the goods as an action star. And yeah. I think that, that uh, from what I've seen, he could have totally worked going forward as that. But yeah. I guess, tragically, we'll never know. Yeah. Um, I still think it's a watchable movie. It's not completely locked in its age. Like, it's unmistakably a 90s film. Yeah. But it's a very watchable yeah. 90s Yeah, the soundtrack film. actually does age it, but it's a really good soundtrack. If you like that sort of grunge goth that was pretty popular at the time. Yeah, and again, the soundtrack's the same as the movie. It's yeah. very 90s, but it's yeah. still great to listen to. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, like, if you would like it, appreciate it more had you lived through the 90s. But I still think, you know, comic book fans, sort yeah. of the gothy, dark, edgy, R-rated horror sort yeah. of... Yeah. The people... I mean, I don't think we have to sell this movie to anyone. No, no. <laughs> there had been... I don't know, can... At the time, was there any other movie quite like this, though? Like Not this, visually. Yeah, like this was like dark fantasy. The basic Death Wish for Revenge story structure, yeah, that's not, a tale as old as time, time but, but how it was done. Yeah. Yeah. It's death. This thing. There's no conscience. Hunger. The rider's going to come out. But when he does, he'll 
destroy whoever's got it coming. You'll take on a new form. One more powerful than he's ever known. Be the opening of this conversation. <laughs> no more politics. Let us discuss Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance uh, from yeah. uh, writing and uh, directing team Nevaldine and Taylor. Although there are other people contributing to the screenplay here, David S. Goyer, yes, who's very weirdly inconsistent in the high quality projects with which he's attached to, yeah. and the low quality projects with which he's attached to. Yeah, uh, I'm of the unpopular opinion that this one is not necessarily low. It's not high for me. This movie is kind of a middle ground superhero movie it it for me does the job enough i know it's a really hated hated movie but i i, I honestly feel like it's overspill from the ghost rider movie like i do not want to oversell ghost rider spirit of a vengeance but it has more energy and more sort of comic book fun in it in any given 10 minutes than the entirety of the first Ghost Rider film. And you still get crazy Nick Cage. Yep. And you still get really pretty special effects. Yep, better and, even. And it's efficiently told, strangely star-studded, and, like, it's not smart. It's an incredibly dumb, simplistic Ghost Rider adventure. But yeah. what did you want to see when you sat down to watch Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance? So, I don't know. I kind of feel like the zeitgeist has been a little bit hard on this. It's not like I'm, like chomping at the bit for more Ghost Rider. Yeah. You know what this movie, a nice analog for, for this movie is? Yeah. Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> okay. You know how Conan I hear the this. Destroyer is not a particularly great Conan movie? Yeah. Especially considering the original Conan movie and how awesome it was? Yeah. But it was like a good enough PG adventure, closer in a way to the comic books that I was reading yeah. than the actual first movie had been. Yeah. It was dumb, and it was fun, and it did the job. And that's what I'm going to say about Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Yep. It was dumb, it was fun, and it did the job. Am I completely insane? Because I feel this is a minority opinion. You're not insane, and in fact, like this is actually the fourth time I've seen this movie. Well, that says something, like, well, that you would re-watch a movie that many times. Yeah, right? yeah, well, I know, I know. I, first time I saw it, I saw it in this beautiful San Francisco movie theater. Um... It is miles better than the first one, but that's you don't. That's not. That's a low bar. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, what were people expecting? I guess is is a really good question from a ghostwriter movie. Um, I will say that probably the best interpretation cinematically or on the TV was the Agents of Shield. I don't know if you ever saw that. I one. have not. Well, I've saw the first season, but I don't believe yeah. Ghostwriter was in there. Yeah, um, I, I I thought that was close to the comics but at the same time this one also was pretty close to the comics as well um, if I had to like put my critic hat on well that's what we're doing yeah, that's what we're doing I, the villains weren't that interesting to me um, like Roadkill kind of fell into the whole Snidely Whiplash villain he's just like 
evil all the time, sort of like arrogant, jaw evil. Like it's just one tone. So I I had really nothing to grab onto him. And is it Kieran Hines or Kieran Hines? I, I, it's one or the other of those. Okay. I want to say Kieran Hines, yeah. but I'm probably going to be corrected. <laughs> probably. And and if this actor is listening to this show, I know he's a big fan of the show. Exactly. <laughs> he plays but, the devil. I actually like that actor quite a bit. I, the thing is, I love that actor. Yeah. I, you know, usually he shows up because he's brilliant in Rome. Yeah. Uh, and and he's played villains before. I, I don't know what it was. It just didn't do anything for me. Whether it's the script, the direction, his choices as an actor. I think it's always weird when you have the devil in kind of a bitch role yeah. in the movie. Like, the devil is supposed to be all-powerful, but yeah. he really needs this ritual to go off. And, you know, this kid, he's trying to get... Actually, we haven't really mentioned the quote-unquote plot. All right, so here we go. <laughs> um, the, 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 the devil has this ritual to get to... The, where he can sacrifice this special child and yeah. it will uh, bring about a second coming. It's yeah. very standard. Yeah. There's a bunch of uh, monks that get corrupted and Idris Elba shows up. To, he finds the chosen kid yeah. and is trying to protect him and Ghost Rider gets mixed in on all of this. Yeah. Um, it's, a more, it's a European adventure. Ghost Rider has abandoned everything that had anything to do with the first movie. Yeah. Again, very smart decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he bonds with this little kid. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people had problems with like really? a lot of people close their eyes and have an image of Ghost Rider peeing fire because the little kid asks if if he pees as Ghost Rider if it's fire and yeah. he, whether it's true or not Nicolas Cage says it's like a flamethrower and we get an image of what that kid would would imagine yeah and it's juvenile yeah but it's a that, that's exactly what a 12 year old kid would think was amazing yeah yeah <laughs> they went to the well I think one two times oh absolutely it. yeah but, but it's the sort of like it's a mall rats conversation like what does the thing's penis look like okay. right it's like yeah, yeah. It, it is juvenile but it's what a kid would talk about and when you're a kid you're allowed to be juvenile and yep. they sort of bond over it yeah and in in a movie a never Nevadine and Taylor movie like yeah. they, they're too busy moving at, at, at light speed to yeah. really like make these emotional moments hit yeah <laughs> so it's basically just character beats wedged in between action sequences yeah but if that's the problem for you I think it's compensated for by him making like a giant Hell tractor. See, <laughs> this is fire. Yeah. Like, oh, I know, I know. That is simultaneously stupid and awesome, and yeah. like that's what I was signing up for. Yeah. See, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance is kind of like the perfect thirteen-year-old boy movie. There's like there's a whole bunch of them because the thirteen-year-old boy movie was like, yay, <laughs> exactly. But then the adult is like, okay, no, don't no. think. Don't think. Disengage your brain. Yeah. That is that is actually the way to go. Yeah. And um, and maybe that would make a lot of you know bad movies good for you. And maybe that's a cop out answer. Yeah. And yes, I will confess that I I like the IP. Yeah. But as evidenced by my despising the first movie, it wasn't yeah. just going to be good enough to show me Ghost Rider on screen. I want it to be something. Yeah. And again, this is like two and a half star review. This isn't like me yeah. foaming at the mouth. No, of- I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm of the same vein. Like, please, like. This isn't like Citizen Kane or any, anything of that ilk. Like this is just yet it, it is of the sort of comic book movie universe, which there are a plenty. It is just not as bad as I think people will at least let on. Is it stupid? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and apparently, Nick Cage was really into it. As like, yeah. like sometimes it doesn't come across, but apparently he's still very passionate about his work. But like. Right. Uh, 
even though they were going to over-CGI his face, he got yeah. this spe specific mask made for when he was playing the Ghost Rider to be super intimidating for the other actors, yeah. which would be nice to help their performances because yeah. another actor wouldn't even give a shit. It was just, it's all going to be green screen anyway. Yeah. Um, and apparently he had like this ancient Egyptian artifact from some tomb that he kept in his jacket as some sort of token of ancient evil or something. Like... Uh, Say what you will about Nick Cage, man. Yeah. <laughs> like he commits to a bit. Look, He's crazy as hell, but yeah. I, I his presence in a movie doesn't always save the movie, but will usually add some spice. Look, I am bowing at the altar of the Nick Nicholas Cage fan club, man. Yeah. Like you don't have to convince me. Right. Um he he, he <sighs> He can sink a movie. I, I, I <laughs> like, like some of his experiments fail. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> yes, but like, if you're gonna be, you know, whether it be a scientist or an artist, you, you've got to try, and you're not always gonna hit. So I applaud him. Yeah. Um, when he's on, he's brilliant. Uh, but it's also, you know, with of course the correct material. Yeah. Um, I think some criticism can be made because he get, maybe got stuck in too much in the action genre, but. If you mix the things like Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, or Mom or Dad, or, you know, was it Color Out of Space, then... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, uh, good enough. Good speech. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Murders like these are not accidental. They're premeditated. He likes to hurt. He likes to hurt human beings. His is not an illness you can cure. He's going to kill me! Where are you? I'll find you. No fingerprints and nothing to do with DNA on. How are you going to catch him? We're going to talk about a film called Sleepless by Dario Argento. Mm. This is later in his career, but not in his really embarrassing stage. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is all, all opinion, but uh, I, I've been on record on the podcast as saying that I I appreciate Dario Argento, but mm. I not, have not been a huge fan of a lot of his films. In fact, two of his personal favorite films, Phenomena and Suspiria, I'm just kind of so-so on. Mm. And... Uh, I haven't seen his entire oeuvre, as it were, but like, uh, it seems to me that a, to a greater or lesser extent, the later into his career we get, the more rocky things become. Yeah. The less confidence I feel, and the more it's just his name on a horror movie, as opposed to him being passionate about putting something up on the screen. And I think that Sleepless lands right in the middle ground, where he's about to sort of flip into the sort of flimsier productions. By flimsier productions, I'm talking about like his version of Phantom of the Opera, or his version of Dracula, yeah. which I found really hard to watch, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Sleepless is him in his comfort zone in a way. It's very jallow, you yeah, know. Jallow. We, we yeah. have the this killer with gloves, and we have a very clear template that we're not going to fuck with. The movie opens with an almost twenty-minute sequence of yeah. this woman being stalked and killed, and then the movie starts. That like that feels like a short film, yeah. and then the movie starts, and then it becomes 
a tedious police procedural for a little while, at least in my opinion. Okay. The the thing that attracted me to the movie was not Argento. It was Max von Sydow. Yeah. I've always been just a big fan of Max von Sydow. And it's not like, what are you doing in a slasher movie, Max von Sydow? I respect that this guy works in every genre. Like, yep. this guy has been an amazing, like, art house fair. Yep. But he's also been in... Bob and Doug McKenzie presents Strange Brew. Yep. He's also been in Flash Gordon. Yeah. He's also been in, in, in Sleepless, right? Yeah. And, you know, maybe it was just a free trip to Rome. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But they've got uh, this aged uh, police investigator uh, that he's going to help out with this uh, series of murders in the investigation. But he's starting to go a little bit senile. He's, yeah. he's way past his best before date. And it's going to be a trick for him to solve the puzzle. And can his hunches be trusted if he's yeah. this fragile? That's the basic setup for the story. But in true Argento style, it's really about boobs and blood. To a point, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think one of the things that hurt the movie is a very, for I think our next episode after this one, I reviewed a movie called Pieces. Yep. Which is basically this movie yep. at warp speed. Yeah. Completely embracing its over the top like sex and violence and they do everything that this movie does in like eighty five minutes. Yep. For me I think this is probably middle ground like it it's okay, but there's something like feels knee deep in mud. Like I feel like I'm trudging through wet cement to get to a conclusion. Yeah. And when the conclusion finally comes it's over and like the credits are rolling before you even seem to like be able to accept that the movie is finished like yeah. it's so sudden a stop after yeah. such a long build that it's hard not to feel a little bit anticlimactic so this movie didn't change my mind on Argento but I didn't hate it yeah that's where I'm starting I actually I sort of my opinion has kind of become greater for it when I first saw it, it when it first came out, because it's like 2001, because I, like I used to, you know, work at a video store, and it was one of those movies I took home for free. I thought I found it pretty generic. I, I mean, I love Max von Sydow, but over time, you know, years have you know passed by enough. I I I, I appreciated Sleepless. Um, I kind of, but it's also a frustrating movie for me. Um, the first 20 minutes of this movie are actually really well made. The, the whole chase uh, on the subway train, train, the subway train, um, we, you know, even with the colors, but the pace of it, um, it's, you know, I found myself energized and, and, you know, full of suspense by it. But at the same time, I was mad at it because there's because I felt like the script was cheating a little bit because we're meant to think at one point that the killer is still back at his place Asleep. in the bed yeah. or, or, and moaning, making that weird sound. But how can that be when he's on the train? Yeah. But it has that. It, it jumps to that. Uh, to you know what we think is that this guy, the killer, uh, back at his place. Uh, so I thought. You felt lied to. I did. I did feel lied to. I thought, is this the kind of dream logic which is associated with at least our general, maybe not Jalo films in general? Yeah. Um, but. If, if you're going to be doing that, like that, that is going to piss off the audience. So that was kind of going through my head, going, I felt lied to, because you know, surprise, the killer is in fact on the train and ends up catching you know the woman. Yeah. Um, I was in the mood for it as well. Um, Jalo films are also film noir murder mysteries, really. They are, and and so they do take their time a little bit, not quite like a serial killer like Seven, which is 
just intense and dark and moves. Jalo films do soak up the atmosphere, and it also allows these long shots. There's this great long shot. For a, a, for a while, you're wondering why the camera's going along the carpet and just focusing on the feet, but then you realize it's going to get to the killer actually you know, doing his job. Doing his job. Uh, so there is lots of long shots where you know the audience thinks, thinking, "Why are we seeing this? Why is this going on?" Oh, okay, we're seeing the killer, or at least some sort of clue being dropped. Uh, so you do have to have the patience for it. Um, and it, it does give more impact to the violence. I will yeah. give it points. Like, yeah. uh, this woman is killed with the, the flute, is it? Oh, yeah. And, uh, like, it's described, we know what happened to her a little bit yeah. before we actually see it, but then we actually see it, and it's yeah. shockingly violent. Yeah. And, like, they hold on it, like, for repeated hits, and you're just like, good God. Yeah. Um, and in that way, um, other movies closer to, like, pieces, which are just so eager to get to the next uh, kill, yeah. the, there's less impact to the next kill because of it. Yeah. But they also fall into the same, because it follows the same pattern. Like I say, big opening kill, yeah. then police investigation. Yeah. The first suspect is always a red herring yeah. every single time. Yeah. And every single time it's based on a murder that happened in the past. Yeah. And it's, like on some certain anniversary, the killing starts up again. Yeah. Like honestly, Sleepless in Pieces are almost the same movie. It's also Deep Red. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot was, of Giallo. Yeah. So I think that if you're a fan of the form of Giallo, yeah. then Sleepless will work for you. Yeah. Uh, for me, it felt like another Giallo film made more interesting with the presence of Max von Sydow. Yeah. And you're right. There are good sequences in it, but yeah. you didn't find it slowly in its Pace or um, well, you found I did, the slow pace rewarding. I, I <coughs> accepted the slow pace. I, I knew it was coming. Uh, th th that's why I sort of said I was in the mood for it. I, I think on a different night I might get frustrated, mm -hmm. um, but it is you know a lot like these sort of pulp novels that you would see in the airport. These murder mysteries. That, that's what they really, really are. Jalo films. Um, I would like I said I was just in the mood for it, and I wasn't fighting in a lot of ways. The only the only time I. I the only time I got angry at it was in the first 20 minutes when it was cheating a little bit. Although there's lots of like logic leaps with this movie. Oh, yeah. No. Um, <clears throat> I also was pretty enamored with Max von Sydow in this movie. I love the little scenes with him and the parrot. The um, uh, you know, him figuring out the song. Uh, you know, we get to see him fighting his old age, and he knows it. Yeah, that's the sad thing about it. Yeah. It's almost a relief. Spoilers. Yeah. <clears throat> like, he's having a heart attack, and I think he knows that he's dying as yeah. it's happening. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. The, the idea of feeling yourself slowly slipping away mentally, it would almost be a relief. Yeah. But, and this is a slight against it, and I do like Max and Sato in the movie, too. When that yeah. scene happened, it was neither unexpected to me, yeah. nor was it emotionally impactful to me. Really? I was just like, oh, no more Max von Sato in this movie. Okay. Um and with his departure, so ends any kind of hero hero in the movie. Like, we have a main character who solves the mystery, yeah. but he doesn't take care of the criminal. Again, the police show up and he gets his face blown up, like, very suddenly. Yeah. And it's over. Yeah. Here's something else that I didn't catch the first time, but... Spoilers: The killer is, is 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 his close friend. Yeah, I hate to, to spoil this for people. Why would he even invite him back? Like he even asked him, "Why did you invite me back?" And I kind of went, "I'm so stupid." Of course, he's because he's the killer. Why? <laughs> there, there was no other method to it. So, um, yeah. Well, even like there was some like really false emotional beats where 
Max von Sydow, you know, comes across the mother of the you know, the man who was first accused, and she, you would think that she would be like really cold and bitter, but she's actually you know kind of jovial towards him. Yeah, it really felt kind of like off putting and thinking this this it doesn't ring true. So there's like weird leaps, weird false emotional beats in the movie as well, well. and just weird tonal shifting. I, I yeah. guess like American audience get criticized for this, and I like I talk about it in my podcast a lot. Where yeah. like we want a movie to be one thing, and we get uncomfortable if it suddenly shifts gears from scene to scene. I guess more European or, or other places in the world are more uh, amenable to this. Yeah, but it, it's just something about like the thriller tone. Yeah. It's like when we talked about the, the town that dreaded sundown, and then they all of a sudden have a really goofy scene for no yeah. reason. Yeah. Uh, it just breaks the mood. Yeah. 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 I can agree with that. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, it, there are way worse Dario Argento films. This movie didn't change my mind about Argento, yeah. but it's not a necessarily a thumbs down and review. I'm just yeah. not enthusiastic about it. No, no and, that, and that's fair. I'm a little more higher on it, but I, like I said, I, I was in the mood for it. I knew. In a lot of ways, what was coming, so... The right movie, on the right day. Yep. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere... Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman? Candyman. Just a... Ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bernadette! It ain't safe around here. That don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? So we're gonna go back to Clive Barker for the last review. Um, this is another early 90s picture, and it's called Candyman. It's set in Chicago, and um, Virginia Madsen stars as a... Who's fucking awesome. She's really good in this movie. It was actually a good way for her to sort of break out of the sort of the sultry, sexy, femme fatale roles. She was just, like, mm. really centered and carried the whole movie. She's investigating urban legends, and she is very brazen and brave. Uh, like, one of the interesting things about the movie, that, that it's obviously has, like... It is it talks about race. Like the main yeah. character is this black hook-handed, yeah. vengeful killer. But um, it was interesting how uncomfortable I was with Virginia Madsen exploring Cabrini Green by herself, and how like I feel like that's incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's racial, right? Yeah. And this movie was made right on the edge mm -hmm. of like the the L.A. riots and mm -hmm. some real tough turmoil, like. Mm -hmm. It, it's hard to say if the timing was good or bad for Candyman, but this issue-based sort of... Uh, Systematic racism is definitely dealt with yeah. in Candyman. And in a way that we won't see it really, that in a really large-scale way again until Jordan Peele enters the scene 20 years later, yeah. right? Um, so that alone makes the movie interesting. 
But the thing that makes me come back to Candyman and the thing that I have like the greatest respect for it, mm-hmm. and I think of any of the Clive Barker adaptations, this movie's legitimately fucking scary. Yep. There is some genuinely scary stuff. It's not all just like the, the sort of racial tension stuff either. It's yeah. like genuinely strong jump scares, earned jump scares. And Tony Todd is terrifying in this movie. And just the idea, like, um, I've, I've brought it up in the podcast before, uh, creative minds can almost conjure a spirit. That's why every every drama department in the world is haunted. Every theater is haunted because creative people are there and their energy wants there to be a ghost there. Yeah. Yeah. But this is not one of these positive, cute little ghosts. This is all the negative energy and all of the wrongs that have been done, not just to Candyman, but to the community, all centered in this place, that they can summon it. And they can summon it by saying Candyman into a mirror five times. Yeah. It's Clive Barker's version of Bloody Mary, yep. fair enough, yep. but it fucking works. Okay. <laughs> it absolutely fucking works. It takes its time, it's patient, it's atmospheric, and uh, of all the great slasher monsters, one of the interesting things about Tony Todd is he's not wearing a mask, yep. he's not burned, he's not scarred. He's Tony Todd. He's yep. got a hook for a hand. That's our monster. Yep. And he's terrifying. Yep. That's where I start with Candyman. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make a bold, controversial statement. Out of all the Clive Barker movies, I think this is the best. I mean, mm-hmm. you said it was the scariest. I think it's the strongest. And and I, I well, this is all due respect to Hellraiser, which Barker directed himself. Um, this movie, it, it, I don't find it slow. I mean, it, it may it takes its time in a deliberate way, um, but it's, it's patient it, horror making. Yeah. It's not like like a lot of people will come to it and think there's going to be a, a, a slasher around yeah. every corner. That's not the movie. It's more patient yeah. than that. Yeah. But it's always scary. Yeah, like Candyman doesn't really actually show up until about forty five minutes into the picture. Yes, we get the opening monologue, but he's certainly just he's talked about and and whispered and and stories told, you know, in in memory. But he the character itself doesn't really show up until about almost the forty five minute mark, and that's kind of impressive. It also does tickle the horror bone or and the intellectual bone for me because I love one of the things I love about the horror genre and monsters is that a lot of these folklore tales come from different cultures. And they're usually, they're designed to be warnings, if you will, or talk about something that is greater, that is really affecting a community or a person. You know, the werewolf lore, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, was about people who might have been mad and ostracized from, you know, the group. You know, vampires are to do with sexuality. Frankenstein's about playing God. Candyman is really talking about race in a lot of ways. You know, he's a tragic villain where you know he's created his greatest crime is that he fell in love with a white woman during you know slavery times and the people believing in Candyman is what keeps him alive so he says he has to shed innocent blood yeah. to stay alive so it's yeah. sort of in a little bit not vampiric in that he's drinking blood but that he has to kill in yeah. order to keep living because if people stop believing him I love the Freddy Krueger mythos or whatever yeah. uh, he ceases to exist yeah. in fact the big deal with him convincing her of his existence is uh that very thing it's sort of revitalizing his power it actually has a parallel to another early 90s horror movie called Mr. Frost Mm. where the devil comes to earth in the shape of Jeff Goldblum Mm -hmm. to convince the most atheist non-believer that he can find in the world 
that the devil is here and the devil is real. Yeah. I think, again, it's not just a seduction of her, although that's definitely part of it, too. Yeah. It's like a complete having her give over to everything she didn't want to believe was true. Yeah. And uh, it's her slow downfall. And because we like her so much, yeah. uh, it, it, it stings. Yeah. Every bad thing that happens to her sucks, and it, it, you keep on waiting for the turnaround to happen. Yeah. And it just doesn't happen. No, no. This is a tragic story for the Virginia Madsen character, Helen. Um, it, let, let's talk about Virginia Madsen for a second. There, this is an actor that I'm surprised hasn't been as big as, you know, she could have been. In a she lot was of supposed ways. to have a career resurgence after Sideways. Yeah, but that and, didn't happen. Yeah, I guess. and she's really, really good. Yeah, she was good in this sort of this Dennis Hopper film, The Hot Spot. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh yeah, Jennifer Connelly was in it. Oh, I saw okay. it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm sorry, wipe that drill from your chin there, there, buddy. Uh, <clears throat> I had a bit of a thing for Jennifer Connelly in the '90s. What? What no, were we talking about? No, no judgment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's really good. You know, for a genre that gets criticized for being misogynistic there's a lot of good female performances in the horror genre and this is one of them I've, heard, I've rang that bell so many times everyone's like they're so terrible towards women have I'm you like, watched any of these fucking movies yeah <laughs> usually a lot of you know female directors get their first you know cut their teeth in horror movies there's a lot of really good strong female characters in that, most horror movies not all but most horror movies yeah. the smartest and most powerful character is a woman. Yep. It's just true. Yep. I mean, yes, there's a lot of women with their tits out that get killed. I'm not going to fight that. That is absolutely a fact. Yeah. But there are, is probably statistically more strong female characters in the horror genre than there are in rom-coms. Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And she's really good in this movie. Uh, her and, I think, is it, is it Vanessa Williams is, is her friend? Is it? I can't remember the actress's name. I don't have the IMDb in front of me. But, yeah, uh, yeah again... Uh, they're really brave too. Yeah. I like that they're trying to solve this puzzle and whatever they need to do, wherever they need to go to solve it, yeah. they'll do it and they'll just deal with what happens there. She gets a brutal shiner from one of the oh, gangsters early yeah. in the movie. Yeah. That's sort of the first domino that tips to start. It's like um, she first thinks maybe the Candyman is just being used by one of the local gangs as yeah. like a, a way to intimidate people. But yeah. no, of course Candyman's real. I want to talk about Tony Todd. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I undercut how good Tony Todd was in the movie. I always think, for me, like the high watermark for me and Tony Todd was the remake of Night of the Living Dead. I just yeah. really liked what he did with that, and yeah. it was a tough role to step into, and I think yeah. he just fucking nailed it. Um, he's a classically trained Shakespearean actor, and like yeah. he's he's got real, like, is for all the cheesy B-movies that he makes, he is an absolutely serious and talented guy. Yeah. And... He gives Candyman gravitas. Yep. And there's so few horror icons that have gravitas. Like, Jason is a lot of things, but he doesn't carry a lot of, like, emotional punch. He just yeah. is what he is. Yeah. And um, we don't know... Uh, we know enough about him. We get his origin story. But there's something regal about him. He yeah. feels like he's, like, a wronged prince or, like, a wronged nobleman or, like, this... Yeah. Uh, and that... Him having to kill people is not something that he necessarily takes joy in, yeah. but uh, he, he does do it in very gr gr gruesome ways, but it's a bland necessity. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's just, th the fact that it's not personal almost makes it more horrifying. <laughs> like, there's no appeal. 
Not that there's most of much appeal to Jason Voorhees either. There's but. almost a sense of desperation to him, almost like a vampire in that sort of way. Be my victim. Yeah. So uh, he does. There, there's layers to this character that you know Freddie might not have, or even Jason has. But I'm talking about in one movie too. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, there, are, there are two other Candyman movies, and the second one especially goes deeper into his backstory. Mm-hmm. But just based on what we get in this movie, yeah. we get we know what happened to him—that he was had his hands sawed off and was yeah. killed with bees being swarmed all over him. Yeah. And that's a that's a painful, awful sort of way to go, and it's sort of. Yeah. Uh, created the creature or the entity that is Candyman. Yeah. Um, but in spite of that, like, I think we're allowed not a lot, mm-hmm. but a little bit of sympathy for Candyman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just sort of makes a difference. Like, in, almost in a way, like uh, with Frankenstein's story, like because he's a created creature, we're supposed to be sympathetic to what he does. But that creature still chooses to kill out of vengeance. Yeah. And I think. It's still bad. Don't kill people. But there's a difference between killing out of vengeance and killing for self-sustain. Yeah. So it's interesting. And yeah. uh, uh, Clive Barker's sort of story uh, was originally set in Liverpool, I think, yeah. in England. And then moving it to America did nothing but actually enhance the themes. Yeah. A lot of times when they transplant the location, you can't quite put your finger on it, but somehow it doesn't feel right. Yeah. Chicago feels really right somehow. Yeah. Credit to Bernard Rose. That's the other guy I do want to shout out here. Um, he did a film called Paper House in the 80s. Did you ever see that I want to see it because they mentioned it on the special features, but I don't think I did. If or I did, I saw it and yeah, I was too I, young I, and I forgot yeah, about it. I, I forgot it as well, but apparently it's quite good. This guy also did Immortal Beloved, which I also really, really liked. And, and a not very well-liked movie called Sex Tape. I, I have not. You didn't, haven't heard of that one. Yeah, I think it was or something tape. It's like a found footage thing. I haven't seen it either. Okay. He's an interesting British director. Apparently yeah. he's a little bit crazy. He wanted to like hypnotize... Virginia Madsen, whenever she was in the presence of Candyman, <laughs> and okay. this like really slowed down production, but he just felt like uh, she would have to get to this place. And the interview of Virginia Madsen was basically saying like she was confident she would get there, but she respected Bernard's process. <laughs> 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 but like, yeah, I get it. He's crazy, but I mean, if if that's what's working for you, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always so interesting to me when this sort of gently meek smile kind of weird dude mm-hmm. makes like a fucking scary movie like you just wouldn't think that came out of him yeah. I mean do credit to Clive Barker obviously it's his story but yeah. there's really punchy moments in this Yeah, like Virginia Madsen waking up covered in blood holding a knife not knowing where she is how she got there yeah. hearing this woman screaming in the other room you yeah. don't have time to, like you're right there with her you don't have yeah. time and then in self-defense, she ends up striking this woman, and it's not one of these, like, glancing blows. Yeah. It's a butchery. It's just this brutal splash yeah. of a cut, and you're just... It gets way more intense and way more frightening than you expect it to. Yeah. And, yeah, because it had been so patient leading up to it. And then you get your classic horror thing where the protagonist is trying to tell everybody that it's the candy man. Yeah, but no one believes you. <laughs> Why would they believe that? Yeah. Right? So I guess what we're saying is that the movie works. Like, I, I haven't said anything negative. No. Uh, even though it's made in the early 90s, I do think it's aged fairly gracefully. There's some maybe fashion things. Um, there's that actor from The Walking Dead uh, who's in it who plays her uh, scummy boyfriend. I can't remember his name, but uh, he shows up in friggin' everything. Yeah. He's in, like, Terminator 2. He's yeah. in The Rock. He's yeah. in, like... 
Uh, One of those uh, familiar character actors, yeah. Yeah, and like it seems like I've just been bumping into him again and again, and like even movies from the early '90s. It's a really enviable position, I think, to be in as an actor, where you're constantly working, but you're still sort of somehow invisible. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for that. It's Xander like, Berkeley. Xander Berkeley, we'll say it is. We nailed it, knew it all the time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to say about Candyman? Have we sufficiently gushed over this one? Uh, no, I just want to correct myself. It's Casey Lemons, who's also become quite the filmmaker as well, who plays the best friend. Oh, okay. Casey uh, Lemons, not. That's Vanessa, the, that did sound Vanessa like. Williams is the other, is the mother, who, the mother. Who, whose son gets kidnapped. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Casey Lemons is, is quite the talent as well. I really loved her uh, Ease Bayou that she did years later with Samuel Jackson. Um, no, like, Candy, there's a reason why Candyman made my uh, top 25 of the best horror films. It is a strong uh, horror film. And, and like I said, I, I love that whole urban legend um, themes that, that, that it discusses. Because I, I do think a lot of our great horror stories do come from urban legends. Yeah. So I, that, that, that's another thing that I just love about Candyman. It's, it's a great movie, and you should see it. Sold. So that was six Boogeyman movies reviewed. Um, They're kind of all over the place. Like, we got some comic book movies, we got some straight lace horror, we got some more goofy ones. uh, It's a strange list of movies to rank, but rank them we must. Um, What was your your least favorite of this group and why? All right, so my least favorite, and, and I don't want to... I hesitate to call it my least favorite because I actually did enjoy it. And, but that is Dario Argento's Sleepless. It has its problems, has its creaks and moans. Uh, any criticism you really do have of Jalo films, you will have of Sleepless. Yeah. But I, I appreciated Sleepless this time around. At number five, I have Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. Uh, it's very, very silly. Silly, very boy, 13-year-old boyish kind of movie. Uh, very schizophrenic with its color palette and, and cuts and whatnot, but it all works. And it and it has Ghost Rider peeing. <laughs> so like how like it can't be all bad. The thing nobody knew they needed to see. Ghost Rider pee. There you go. So at number five, Ghost Rider. Yeah. Otherwise known as the P movie. Uh at number four I have, and this is why I needed my list in front of me. There's a stack of movies right there. Right? All right, there we go. Rawhead Rex. There he was. Uh, that's that's what I had at, at number four. Uh, a very very interesting, um, kind of w- really wild random scenes. But you really, sh- I, like I said, you need to read the novella for it to kind of go. Ah, makes sense. It's crazy. The movie is crazy as a crazy AZ, crazy AZ's movie can be, and, yeah. and I love it for it. So, uh, Rawhead Rex, top three. All right, Hatchet. Good. What can I say about Hatchet? It's it's jaw dropping. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, Hatchet, 
jaw dropping. Uh, it's definitely an is what it is movie. It does not false advertise at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then at number two, I have Alex Proyas's The Crow, uh, because I believe in angels, as the tagline <laughs> says. I'm, I'm throwing out all the hits now. Uh, no, uh, the visually striking, very morbid, yet, you know, thumping, electronica, grungy. Uh, I once call it the best comic book movie ever made. There, there's since been, I think, greater comic book movies, but as a comic book movie uh, of its time, it's definitely, it's the crow, man. Yep. And I think to no one's surprise, I have Candyman at number one. Uh, I think it's Clive Barker's best movie, even though he's not the one directing it. It's it's probably one of the best ninety horror films out there. So, and I think I mean, other than a few moments in Sleepless, it's kind of the scary movie. Yeah, that we have here. Yeah, which yeah. might have maybe loaded the deck a little bit, but yeah, there it is. There it is. So there you go. That's a very solid rank, and we're incredibly close. Oh, we were, I was actually thinking for a second there you were just going to double down on your championship, and. I don't think we're going to fight. I don't think you're going to yeah. be mad at where we switch out. It's yeah. not a big deal. I agree with you in sixth place. I do put Sleepless. Yeah. I just think it's it's a little bit knee-deep in mud. I want it to move faster than it does, and it yeah. never does. And when stuff happens in a few points in the movie, it happens so quickly. It feels anticlimactic. I feel a little bit teased by the movie. Yeah. But if you're into that Jallo thing, if yeah. you do vibe on this sort of thing, yeah. this is one of the better Argento exercises in that thing. It doesn't yeah. surprise you, but it does what it does. Yeah. Again, perhaps overperforming. I will agree with you in fifth place, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. There's a yeah. lot of hate for this movie. Mm. It is a stupid movie. It knows that it's a stupid movie. And yeah. it is five times more entertaining than the original Ghost Rider. Yeah. Like, I kind of wish this had been the original Ghost Rider. Yeah. It would not have been amazing, but it would have been closer to the mark. Yeah. And um, maybe I'm just feeling sorry for it because it just got so beat up on, or maybe it's me just having a soft spot for Nick Cage, but yeah. I don't know. I've seen it a couple of times now, and it's just kind of like it put a, a dumb, juvenile smile on my face. Yeah. And I think that's what it's trying to do. Like, give a movie points for achieving its goals. Yeah. In fourth place, still in agreement, the very low budget and rough Rawhead Rex. Uh, I really wish Rawhead Rex didn't look like a Guar character. Like, it's just, it's unfortunate. It, like, takes the kind of impact away from, like, the creature. And this is a creature movie. Yeah. And uh, I think it might be kind of getting away with something. Yeah. But I, I think, as you'll see, as the rest of the list sort of progresses, I'm yeah. sort of sympathetic to people who are working uphill with a minimal budget yeah. first time out. Yeah. I put The Crow in third place. Alrighty. If this was the 90s, The Crow might be number one. Like, I remember yeah. I was really enthusiastic about The Crow when I was younger. Yeah. I think that I have grown up a little bit, and the movie is still sort of where it was. And yeah. uh, um, so for me, this time around... I kind of sort of, I enjoyed it, but yeah. in from a distance, you know, and, and uh, I, I'm sure I'll watch it again at some point. Maybe maybe like my boys will be curious about it or something like that. Yeah. I still have a lot of fun with it, yeah. but I wanted to give some extra love to Hatchet. Yeah. In, in spite of the super rocky first 20 minutes of the movie, like I say, the movie just takes this turn. And once that happens... Anybody who loves the genre is just going to relax and go with it and be really, <laughs> like, yeah. 
and there's just something about how it just clearly doesn't give a fuck. Like, yeah. it's just like, oh, oh, is this going to be offensive to you? Well, then watch a different movie, asshole. Like, yeah. that's this kind of, like, punk vibe of the movie. And it's, it, I don't feel like it's wagging its finger at me. No. It, it loves the movie, and it loves me for loving the movie. And, yeah. uh, I don't know, because it's so appealed to the fanboy base in me, like, yeah. I let it get to second position. On a technical level, is it as well made or executed as The Crow? No fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> no fucking way. Yeah. But I just had to give it a... But of course, Candyman is number one. I mean, like, there's just so much more going on in this movie. It's yeah. a deep, kind of pseudo-intellectual horror movie, which is, yeah. like, rare now, but in the 90s, practically non-existent. Yeah. Which is really strange, considering the 90s started with Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And it just instantly got dumber. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah. Um, Candyman still lives loud and proud, and I gotta say, I'm, I go in with some hesitation to the forthcoming remake, but I'm the all, presence I'm, of Jordan Peele, like, I'm, I'm there for you, I want it to be good, but I'm just not certain we need a new Candyman. Fair enough. Thanks for being here, brother. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And so ended the lesson on Boogeyman. This was the 197th episode of Ranking Review. We're closing in towards the 200th episode, you guys. How crazy is that? So I hope you continue to listen. Every other Wednesday, Ranking Review will be dropping new podcasts. Big thanks to Mr. Beckman for being here for this podcast. And please send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out that website at rankandreview.ca. And tell that other movie nerd in your life about the podcast Rank and Review. Thank you so much for your ears, you guys. <laughs>